They say the journey is more important than the destination, or something like that. I guess there is wisdom in that. I feel like I've been looking toward the future continuously ever since I grew up. Someday I'll be somewhere where I can settle into life. A long-term community. A long-term career. My conscience dangles that out in front of me like a carrot in front of a mule. I've done everything the long way. Traveled along my own best path without a map and too stubborn or ignorant to stop and ask for directions. I spent excess years in college excess years in graduate school. I'm 38 years old. I was talking to a close friend of mine about when we were kids. I said, remember when your dad used to come down to the basement and get us in trouble and be all pissed off? You know, he was younger at that time than we are now. We could hardly believe this observation. The old man with the beard and the pipe whose disapproval with whatever it was we were doing was expressed with guttural displeasure. Yeah, that guy. When my parents were my age, they were at the top of their game, home-owning, self-made, working-class professionals. I'm playing a game, too, pretending to be a scientist, a podcaster, a father, a responsible adult. I have now been working on this podcast for six months. I've covered some ground, I think. The document in written form is over 140 pages. I've been thinking about time lately. In the previous episode, I discussed the perception of time. I came to the conclusion that we are not sensing time itself, but the unfolding of events, namely change. Since change doesn't come about all at once, but continually, there is no other way for us to see things but ever changing across time. Time seems to be of such centrality to the understanding of consciousness in the universe that I'm going to explore it directly in this episode. If the known laws of physics have no preference for a forward direction in time, then why does time seem to move in that way? And what is the present moment? Sean Carroll writes in From Eternity to Here, quote, If you were floating in a spacesuit far away from any planets, all directions in space would be truly indistinguishable. There would be no preferred notion of up or down. The technical way to say this is that there would be symmetry in the laws of nature. Every direction in space is as good as every other. It's easy enough to reverse the direction of space, take a photograph and print it backward or for that matter, just look in a mirror. For the most part, the view in a mirror appears pretty unremarkable. The obvious counterexample is writing, for which it's easy to tell that we are looking at a reversed image. That's because writing, like the Earth, does pick out a preferred direction, but the images of most scenes not full of human creations look equally natural to us, whether we see them directly or we see them through a mirror. Contrast that with time. The equivalent looking at an image through a mirror, reversing the direction of space, is playing a movie backward, reversing the direction of time. And in that case, it's easy to tell when time has been inverted. The irreversible processes that define the arrow of time are suddenly occurring in the wrong order. What is the origin of this profound difference between space and time? Unquote. Immediately we see that processes involving cause and effect go to absurd places if we run the universe in the backward direction. Imagine a world of effects followed by their causes. A scatter of white and blue shards of glass swoops together and forms a teacup which soars up onto a table as an elbow moves away from it. Eventually, the teacup will be disassembled in a factory in China and its raw materials exported back into the world. A tree shrinks to a sprout then to a seed which floats away to a high branch where only subsequently it is pollinated. 
Since everything that happens necessitates the thing that caused it, we see a completely deterministic universe carrying on and condensing until the Big Bang, or in this case, Big Suck. Physicists imply that this is just as valid a way to account for the universe. Could it be that our intuitions about cause and effect are this wrong? Or should we doubt the physicists' conclusion on this one, on the grounds that they look like nonsense? Sean Carroll writes, quote, The arrow of time, therefore, is not a feature of the underlying laws of physics, at least as far as we know. Rather, like the up-down orientation space picked out by the Earth, the preferred direction of time is also a consequence of features of our environment. In the case of time, it's not that we live in the spatial vicinity of an influential object, it's that we live in the temporal vicinity of an influential event, the birth of the universe. The beginning of our observable universe, the hot, dense state known as the Big Bang, had a very low entropy. The influence of that event orients us in time, just as the presence of the Earth orients us in space." Unquote. It seems that entropy provides our universe with its arrow of time. The second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy of a closed system either remains constant or increases with time. This is asymmetrical. In our universe, the total entropy goes up as we go forward in time. The total entropy goes down as we go backward in time. So our shattering teacup and our growing tree must be going in the direction of increasing entropy. Effects in the world must exact a cost in entropy in relation to their causes. Every cause say an action potential fired by a neuron and influencing other neurons downstream, begins with a state of lower overall entropy than it ends. Here is one final passage from Sean Carroll's book. He writes, quote, The basic story goes as follows. 1. In the early universe, before structure forms, gravity has little effect on the entropy. The universe is similar to a box full of gas, and we can use the conventional formulas of thermodynamics to calculate its entropy. The total entropy within the space corresponding to our observable universe turns out to be about 10 to the 88th at early times. 2. By the time we reach our current stage of evolution, gravity has become very important. In this regime, we don't have an ironclad formula, but we can make a good estimate of the total entropy just by adding up the contributions from black holes, which carry a huge amount of entropy. A single supermassive black hole has an entropy on the order of 10 to the 90th and there are approximately 10 to the 11th such black holes in the observable universe. Our total entropy today is therefore something like 10 to the 101. 3. But there is a long way to go. If we took all of the matter in the observable universe and collected it into a single black hole, it would have an entropy of 10 to the 120. That can be thought of as the maximum possible entropy obtained, obtainable by rearranging the matter in the universe, and that's the direction in which we are evolving. Our challenge is to explain this history. In particular, why was the early entropy 10 to the 88 so much lower than the maximum possible entropy 10 to the 120? Note that the former number is much, much, much smaller than the latter. Appearances to the contrary are due to the miracle of compact notation. The good news is, at least the Big Bang model provides a context in which we can sensibly address this question. In Boltzmann's time, before we knew about general relativity or the expansion of the universe, the puzzle of entropy was even harder, simply because there was no such event as the beginning of the universe. In contrast, we are able to pinpoint exactly when the entropy was small, and the particular form that low entropy state took. That's a crucial step in trying to explain why it was like that." Unquote. 
The human brain is the most complex structure with the most complex functioning of anything in the universe that has ever been discovered. This implies, doesn't it, that relative to the environment, the brain is extremely low in entropy. Living creatures like us, each assembled of millions of orderly biochemical factories, have evolved over three billion years on Earth. In fact, life has been a continuous process. In an important sense, we are still the same living organism that began in the primordial soup, an unbroken process of cellular division, growth, and differentiation. How is this possible given the second law of thermodynamics? At least in terms of entropy, we live in a unidirectional universe unfolding across time. The law of thermodynamics is satisfied by the immense amount of energy that is consumed in the continuation of the organism. We bathe in the light of the sun, and as one collective living world, the output in entropy is greater than the output in usable energy. The exhaust system of this machine expels entropy. In accordance with this view of life on Earth as a single ultra-complex system, we humans are like the fruiting bodies of a fungus, a part of something much bigger, but nonetheless a part endowed with consciousness and a sense of individual selfness. We we sensitive modern people lament the extinction of one genus or another in our great family tree, and yet natural selection works on all our parts in each of their niches and ecosystems to improve the suitability of the whole, and the Earth's great experiment in biology runs on. We have some sense of the directionality of time, then. But what is the present moment? Are we riding along the leading edge of time at the cusp between past and future, or does it just seem that way from our point of view? In his book, Your Brain is a Time Machine, Dean Buonamano discusses the difference between two philosophical views, presentism and eternalism. He writes, quote, Presentism, as the name hints, states that only the present is real. Under presentism, the past is a configuration of the universe that once existed, and the future refers to some yet-to-be-determined configuration. Eternalism, in sharp contrast, states that the past and future are as equally real as the present. There is absolutely nothing particularly special about the present. Under, eternal, under eternalism, now is to time as here is to space. Even though you currently find yourself to be in one point in space, you know that there are many other points in space, different rooms, cities, planets, and galaxies, that are all equally valid places to be in. Similarly, even though you perceive yourself to be in a point in time you call now, there are past and future moments in time in which other beings and younger and older yous find themselves." Unquote. He goes on a bit further, quote, "...presentism certainly conforms to our intuition that as each, at each instant of our lives transforms into a past moment, it is gone. Whether or not that moment leaves an imprint in our memory, the moment itself ceases to exist. Presentism also corroborates our feelings of control." that our decisions and actions shape an open future. Neuroscientists rarely have to grapple with the issue of presentism versus eternalism, but in practice, neuroscientists are implicitly presentists. They view the past, present, and future as fundamentally distinct, as the brain makes decisions in the present based on memories of the past to enhance our well-being in the future. But despite its intuitive appeal, presentism is the underdog theory in physics and philosophy." Unquote. Whether or not Buonamano intends to demean neuroscientists as presentists, I must agree that I fall into that category, or at least that it has my sympathies. Perhaps this should be credited less to my neuroscience and more to my consciousness, though. As a conscious being, time has directionality, and the present moment is undeniable. 
I have said that consciousness is continuous in time, but when? In an eternalist block universe, where are we now? When is, was, or will be, now? It seems apparent that the configuration of the universe from here on Earth is specific and measurable. We are located in space and time, and things keep progressing around us. My intuition is that the eternalist view of the universe is a hypothetical one, an abstraction based on what the equations allow, but not a real description of things as they are. I came into being when this organism's brain became suitably developed for my production, and I will continue to be for the duration of that production. If we do live in an eternalist universe, in coexistence with all things past, present, and future, what does that mean for you and me? Is time a dimension, just like the three dimensions of space? Stephen Hawking wrote in The Universe in a Nutshell, quote, General relativity combines the time dimension with the three spatial dimensions to form what is called space-time. The theory incorporates the effect of gravity by saying that the distribution of matter and energy in the universe warps and distorts space-time so that it is not flat. Objects in this space-time try to move in straight lines, but because space-time is curved, their paths appear bent. They move as if, as if affected by a gravitational field." Unquote. Was Einstein right? Is time one of four dimensions? Is that a helpful analogy or a literal fact? Bonomano writes on this subject, quote, Newton's law of gravitation described the relationship between the force of gravity and mass and distance, but he offered few insights into what gravity really was. General relativity offered an astonishing answer. Gravity was not really a force per se, but the warping of space-time. General relativity further legitimized Minkowski's marriage of space and time into space-time. Some would argue that General relativity provides an even more powerful argument than special relativity in favor of eternalism, because some solutions of the equations of general relativity allow for the possibility of time travel." Unquote. Based on Einstein's theories, Bonomano lists three reasons for favoring eternalism over presentism. He writes, quote, one, the laws of physics provide no evidence that now is any more special than here, implying that all moments in time are as equally real as all locations in space. 2. Special relativity establishes that two distant events experienced as simultaneous by one observer will not be simultaneous in another observer's frame of reference, and thus that all moments in time are eternally laid out within the block universe. 3. There are solutions to the equations of general relativity that imply that time travel is possible, and thus that we live in an eternalist universe in which the past and future are in some sense already out there." Unquote. I am aware that the picture provided by physics has grown more elaborate since Einstein, but if we really are localized in space-time by four variables, then we must coexist with the past and the future, not only as states of matter and energy, but as selves. Am I Jesse's consciousness across his life, or just Jesse's consciousness in this moment in space-time? Have we ever met before, or is this the only moment I get? Remember Clive Waring? I talked about him in episode 20 on memory. He was an amnesic patient with severe hippocampal damage. He had no long-term memory, so he had the constant feeling that he had just shown up in the world for the first time, just now. And he would have this experience again and again. What if the only difference between me, right now in this moment, and Clive Waring, is that my brain stores and retrieves past episodes of information that are presented to my mind as context for my current situation? Are there other minds in occupancy of Jesse's previous and future endeavors? 
I can't be in more, more than one place at once. I am. Of that I am certain, just as certain as René Descartes was. But is the I that I am the same I that said that I am in the past? Mm -hmm.